Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 201 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Transitioning with Lyme, an interview with Sam Lesh. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Now, one of the most difficult times, at least in my relationship with my children, was when they transitioned from childhood to adulthood. It was difficult for us, and it was difficult for our children who had to assume all kinds of responsibilities that we had been taking care of for them. And when you add Lyme disease and managing a chronic illness, it makes that transition all that much more difficult. Rich, for me, the most important part about Sam's interview is the fact that she was misdiagnosed four times by four false negative Western blot tests. Sam and her family knew that something was wrong and they kept pushing and pushing and fighting and fighting. And finally, they got a Lyme diagnosis and were able to get her properly treated. So the takeaway for me is to never give up and keep fighting for your health. Matt, transitioning is very difficult and transitioning with Lyme makes it almost impossible. It's simply not fair that children in our society have to assume as much responsibility as they do as quickly as they do. And then having to assume the responsibility of a chronic illness is just simply unfair. But the good news is, Young women like Sam Lesh are doing a great job of making this transition. And I think in the end, this is a really inspirational story. So Matt, I'm really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, Sam Lesh. Hey, Sam, and welcome to the program. Why don't we begin by introducing you to our community by you sharing with us where you live? I live in North Carolina with uh, my aunt and uncle. And are you enjoying your time in North Carolina? Yes, I love the sun and the warm weather. So Sam, what are you currently doing in North Carolina? Are you uh, working and or going to school? I'm a student and I do catering and I also work at a boutique. All right, so you're a busy gal. Yes. <laughs> so now you said that you recently moved to uh, North Carolina. Where are you originally from? Upstate New York. And what part of New York are you from? Uh, near Syracuse, about 30 minutes away. And we know you're not from Long Island because your speech and your accent certainly do not sound like you're a Long Islander. So uh, <laughs> congratulations that you're not going to butcher your, uh, your pronunciations the way Matt and I will today. So, <laughs> so Sam, um, talk to us about uh, what it was like to grow up in Auburn, New York. Um, it was great. I played tennis and golf throughout high school, and I would always love spending time with my family. And um, I found out I um, really liked singing. So I um, started taking lessons and I actually sing at my uncle's wedding. And that was really cool. And I would sing at other events. So when you were growing up in Auburn, New York, what is it that you thought you would do when you grew up? Meaning what were you working towards? What were you dreaming about? Um, I always wanted to be a teacher. And then over the past few years, like I visited North Carolina to come visit my aunt and uncle. And I just absolutely fell in love with it here. And I knew one day I wanted to end up here. Okay. So talk to us about what your educational experience was like in Auburn, New York, meaning was it a good school system? Um, and what kind of classes were you taking while you were there? So Auburn High School, yeah, it was great. Um, it was different for me because I was at a private school called St. Joe's. And so just like switching from, I don't know, like there were 18 students in my class and then going to like 100, it was just different, but it was nice being part of sports. Um, and the teachers were great. So now... Let's talk about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases as a student in Auburn, New York. Um, did you ever take any classes, whether they be health classes or science classes or any other type of class where you discussed uh, ticks and tick diseases? Um, not that I recall of. And I always like heard of Lyme disease, but I never knew anything about it. So what did you hear of it and what did you know about it? Um, I think like, once I heard it like mentioned in the Bible and then I, I just didn't know much about it. I just kind of heard of it. That was all. Okay. So you received a really good education in Auburn, New York in the uh, school system, both your private and public school system, yet you knew nothing about how to take care of yourself or protect yourself from ticks or tick diseases from your educational experience, correct? Right. You said you're also an athlete. You play golf and you play tennis, right? So you were mm -hmm. an outdoorsy gal. Uh, we know that golfers are at risk for Lyme disease more than probably any other athlete. 
Um, now, as part of as part of your athletic experience, where you were being taught how to protect your body and how to be available and how to perform at the highest level when you were either playing tennis or golf, uh, were you taught anything about how to protect yourself from ticks or tick diseases? Um, never really anything about ticks, <laughs> just the sport itself. So, when you were out to play golf, for example, were you ever given any any uh, spray to put on your shoes or on your socks or on your clothing to protect you from coming in contact with ticks no but i always knew to like check my socks and stuff so when you say you knew to check your socks how did you know to check your socks and what were you looking for well because i always like people would always like kind of talk about ticks like not necessarily in golf or like in school but like my parents and I guess I never really thought of um, doing it at the golf course, but I would just honestly always check myself anyways, because when I was little, like, just be like, oh, check your socks, like wear high socks, you know, all that. So. So you did receive some information about how to keep yourself safe from text from your parents, right? So there was this yeah. cultural education that you received. Now, talk to us about what your parents taught you and how you followed up on what your parents taught you. Well, we had this one friend who um, he owned some land and we would like plant trees and stuff. And um, we would just like make sure we never had any ticks on us. And just like kind of check our whole body. I don't remember if um, I ever used tick spray, but of course I use it like all the time now. Right. So. so, and of course we are much more careful after we've gotten sick from a tick disease, right? But my hope is at some point there'll be sufficient awareness so that people will not get sick in the first place, right? right. So let's focus on that piece of it, Sam. So your parents were generally tick aware. They made you generally tick aware, but I want more details on how you checked yourself or how your parents checked you or a combination of the two. Specifically, what did you do to check yourself and when did you do it? Um, just like if I was in like a woodsy area or something, um, that was really it. And I don't remember if I used like a tick spray or anything, but. But Sam, you uh, grew up in Auburn, New York, and at least here on Long Island, we sort of envision that being a really rural part of New York State. So were you only in the woods every once in a while and you then checked yourself every once in a while? Or was this something you did every day? No, it was like once in a while. I mean, honestly, we never really talked about ticks or like I knew the gist of it. And like if I went in a woodsy area to check myself, but it was never like an everyday thing brought up. And, or, or if you went to the friend's place, who, you know, the, the friend who had the large piece of land and you were planting trees, you would check yourself then as well. So right. it was every once in a blue moon when you were in a woodsy area, you would check. All right, so now talk to us specifically about what you would do to check. How would you check yourself? Um, I would just kind of like check my body to see if there were any bugs and I'd feel my arms and I'd feel my legs and um, just check my socks and everything. So, so it was largely, when I got in the shower. Or, so Sam, it was largely a visual check, but you would use your hands to touch your arms and your legs to see if you felt anything. Yes. Okay. So now let's talk about when you first started to feel the symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease. When did you first start to get sick? So my dad, he's a chiropractor and he had a seminar in New Jersey and I was walking around with my cousin and it kind of felt like I maybe pulled a muscle in the back of my leg. So he's like, okay, we'll just, you know, take it easy and go to sleep. And so then a few days later, it was still really bothering me and we were eating dinner one night and I couldn't move my hands. So my parents, of course, they were really freaked out and I was too. And they took me to the emergency room and we checked for arthritis markers and nothing came back. So, you know, we kind of went home and my parents just held me and prayed with me 
And then it just started to get really bad. I, um, I would have nights where I would have pain in my ribs and in my back, and it would just shoot everywhere throughout my body. And that happened for a few months and my parents just had to hold me in bed. And Sam, let's go back to the first symptom. So you said your dad was at a conference, you were walking with your cousin and you lost the ability to walk, right? Your one of your legs stopped working. Yeah. Give us more detail about what that was like, meaning how did your legs stop working? And then what was your reaction to that? Um, my reaction was like, <laughs> I don't know, like it really hurt and I didn't think it was a pulled muscle, but at the same time, like I, I can be a little dramatic sometimes. <laughs> so, um, I was like, okay, my dad's a chiropractor. Like he's probably right. I just pulled the muscle, but I, we were walking around and I was limping and it was actually December too. So like the cold was just making it so much worse. <laughs> So when you said that you could be dramatic, were you thinking that perhaps this was something that was in your head rather than a physical ailment that was preventing you from walking? Um, I'd say both. Yeah. So how did you ultimately resolve that problem? Meaning how did you start walking again or how did you get from where you were to, you know, to the hotel you were staying at or the restaurant you went to or whatever you did after that? Um... Honestly, I can't really recall, but I just remember limping for a while and it was in that leg for a while, like, <laughs> um, and then like, it was kind of switching legs, like, and then the pain just got all over the place. So your, so your, your symptoms are beginning to radiate from one part of your body to another part of your body. Yeah. And, uh, and that was going on for some time. Now, were you sharing that with your parents and did your parents take you to see any medical professionals at that time? Yeah. So my parents are like, um, really considerate with what they do and they didn't just want to take me anywhere. So they did lots of research and, um, I went to a handful of doctors and, they all, so I had, um, I forgot to mention, I also had strep at the beginning of senior year, which was the same time. And so one doctor thought it was um, strep coctual arthritis. So for a while, my diagnosis was just arthritis. And then I actually went to see an arthritis doctor and he said nothing was wrong with me. So now when your parents are doing their research before bringing you to doctors, do you know if they ever came to the conclusion that perhaps you are suffering from Lyme disease? They had that in the back of their heads and um, they were really hoping it wasn't. And, you know, they, yeah, they were just hoping and praying it wasn't Lyme. And um, uh, and all the doctors just kept saying it was arthritis. So that's what we thought for a while. And then my symptoms just were different and like the light sensitivity and um, sensitivity to noise. And so we also had a family friend who she had Lyme. So then we thought maybe it could be the Lyme. So Sam, how long was it between when you first had your first symptom where you had lost the ability to walk to the time that you finally went to see a doctor who specializes in Lyme disease? Um, I'd have to say a few months because I took the Western blot test, which is for Lyme, and that came back negative four times. Um, so then the family friend who we know had Lyme, she was like, take the 
it's a test from California and it's DN through DNA connections. Yes. And we're, so we're yeah. familiar with them. We actually, we actually uh, did an interview uh, podcast interview with, uh, with the, uh, with one of the, one of the principals at DNA connections. So they're a wonderful company. Okay. Yeah. So I did that and then it said I had Lyme and all these co-infections. So then um, my dad attended a seminar and he found a kinesiologist. Um, I forgot his name, but my mom and I flew to California. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. During the course of the time that your symptoms were developing, how was it affecting you emotionally? Meaning, how were you feeling as your symptoms were developing and you didn't have a diagnosis other than arthritis? Honestly, I, I was obviously tired and worn out. Um, and it just felt like my body was just shutting down on me. And I knew it. I just knew it was more than arthritis. And again, I never really knew much about Lyme, um, but I just knew it was more than arthritis because I always thought like arthritis was when your joints would hurt. And those were my symptoms that my joints would hurt, especially in the cold. But your, 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 your joint pain was radiating and you had other, you had other symptoms, right? You right. had your light sensitivity, you had your noise sensitivity, you had other things, right? So you knew that it was an arthritis. You knew it was something else. Um, and how did it make you feel when you were receiving a diagnosis from the doctors that, uh, that it was something other than you knew what it was? And how did it make you feel that your parents were kind of supporting that diagnosis of arthritis? Um, I was honestly frustrated, but at the same time, I didn't want to be diagnosed with Lyme. But I did want a diagnosis, but... We were all just hoping and praying it wasn't Lyme. Um, and it was new and scary for us. So I think we all kind of were on the same page that it was arthritis. But then as my symptoms progressed, we were like, no. <laughs> well, Sam, why were you so afraid of a Lyme disease diagnosis as opposed to arthritis diagnosis? because my dad would do research and he ordered a bunch of books like you and he would read them every night. And um, again, I didn't like, I wasn't able to read all that, but um, just the way it made them feel like I knew my parents were scared and I didn't, I didn't want that. So. So Sam, you, um, you said that you took four separate Western blots. Um, mm -hmm. Who administered those tests? Was it all one doctor? And why did you take so many? Um, it was, yes, my, my regular doctor. And he said, he kind of, um, after the strep, um, he know we told him the symptoms. And so he, he put me on doxy right away. And I did not respond well to that because my immune system was not good. Um, well, tell so, us about that for a second. So what, when you say you didn't respond well to the doxy, what does that mean? How did you react? How did you feel physically and emotionally? Um, I, it made me super nauseous and I couldn't eat and just couldn't move. I was kind of in bed for a while. And so he put me on Doxy because he's like, if it is Lyme, then this will, you know, get rid of it. Um, so how much Doxy did the doctor give you and for how long did you take it? Um, I don't recall how much he gave me, but I think I was only on it for like a week because I was like, mom, I can't handle this anymore. So the doctor making a clinical diagnosis did begin to treat you for the Lyme disease and then mm -hmm. gave you the Western blot test. Right. So now when the doctor gave you the doxycycline, did he talk to you about gut health and doing anything to protect your gut while you were taking a doxycycline? Um, 
I think he had me taking a probiotic at the time, but I don't. And and the the probiotic wasn't helpful. You continue to be nauseous and st struggle with the with the doxycycline. Right. So what happened after you finished taking the doxycycline? Did it make you feel any better? And did you pivot to anything else after that? Honestly, I think I felt worse. And with my dad being a chiropractor, he um, takes lots of supplements and we've always taken them um, since we were little. So I just started getting on some supplements, not, not too crazy. What kind of supplements did your dad recommend that you take him and were they helpful? Um, like fish oils. Uh, I've taken so many supplements in my life. So <laughs> like vitamin D. Like. So Sam, the, the, the doctor who was treating you initially with the doxycycline who had given you the first Western blot test the first test came back negative, but then you went and took three more tests. So who are the doctors that gave you the three additional Western blot tests? And were you being told that the Western blot wasn't a particularly effective test at diagnosing Lyme disease? Um, honestly, I don't remember because I was just too sick at the time. So my parents just kind of took control of everything. Um, but I think we would hear from like some people that, oh, it's not um, that great. You know, sometimes it can be false, so. So Sam, you said that you were really sick at the time. How sick were you? Were you able to go to school? Were you able to play golf and tennis? Were you able to, you know, participate in your singing lessons? What, how was it interfering with your life? So um, after the strep, I just, didn't sing for a while. And then I feel like the Lyme may have attacked like my lymph nodes. Um, and I didn't really sing for a while. And then with golf, um, with golf, I, we have to walk nine holes, but my coach made it possible so I could get a golf cart and, you know, I'd get like looks, from other girls and they'd say, oh, that's not fair. She's at an advantage. And like, and, then, and I was like in my head, like, no, <laughs> I'm definitely not at an advantage. And it, it was tough. And um, after like a few holes, I'd be completely wiped out. So let's talk about the social response to your symptoms, right? You gave us an example of the other girls you were competing against saying it was unfair for you to have a golf cart while you were playing golf. Um, were there any other social issues, meaning were there friends who stopped calling you? Did you have family members who questioned whether or not you were really sick before your diagnosis? How, um, how did you get treated socially when you were going through your diagnostic journey? So, um, it was my senior year, so I have to go to school, you know, so I could graduate and stuff. So I'd walk in and I'd be limping or, you know, sometimes my leg would just spaz out of nowhere and I, I couldn't write. So my writing was really sloppy and my hands were shaky. So like people would stare at me and, um, then when I started to like lose a lot of the weight, I think people started to kind of notice how sick I actually was, but they didn't know like in depth. Um, and people would make fun of like what I ate because our family friend told me to go like gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, and grain-free. So, <laughs> I mean, what options does that leave you with? So people would make fun of me for that, or if I brought my supplements to school because I had to take them, um, I'd get made fun of for that too. And it was just really tough. How did it make you feel when your classmates were mocking you about either your supplements or your food choices or even your appearance because you had lost so much weight? Um, I honestly felt alone and I didn't want to like come bring that to my 
parents because I already knew like how much they were going through when I did get sick and I just never wanted to be a burden. Um, but it was tough because people would ask me like, are you even gonna graduate? Like, why are you never in school? Oh, you have another doctor's appointment? Like stuff like that. And I, I did tell my parents and like, they'd let me stay home sometimes. And my teachers were really great. <laughs> Somehow I made honor roll, <laughs> um, just being home. So the last um, two months of high school, I went out on medical release because it just got too hard physically and emotionally. You said that your parents went through a lot while you were in this phase of your journey. What do you mean by that? Um, how, do, how were they showing their pain and, um, and how did that make you feel um, when you saw them in pain? Um, just seeing their daughter sick um, who always used to be so full of laughter and smile and just always walking in love. Um, and I have, uh, three other sisters. So, you know, everything with Lyme gets pretty costly. So. How did your sisters treat you when you were going through this pre-diagnostic phase? I mean, before you took the DNA connection session, it was finally a Lyme disease diagnosis. How did your sisters react to all of the attention you were getting um they were pretty good about it but like sometimes if you know if they didn't want to take the dog out or something they'd be like why can't Sam or just stuff like that but they were really good and if I needed something they would help me so Sam, before you got the results from the DNA connections test, was there ever a time when you doubted whether you were really physically sick or that you were just maybe emotionally sick? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Meaning, did, did you really believe that there was something physically wrong with you? Or did you think it was possible that you had, you know, you were suffering from some form of um, mental illness that was causing you to have physical symptoms? Oh, no, I felt like it was physical. Yeah. So now you finally take your, your DNA connections test, right? Mm -hmm. And you have your Lyme disease diagnosis. Did that make any changes for you socially? Meaning, were you now able to explain to people what was wrong with you? And were you able to, you know, was that able to help you to deal with this a little bit better? Um. Not really. <laughs> so how did you feel after you got your diagnosis? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I actually forgot about this part, but I saw a kinesiologist and she was the one who diagnosed me um, first while we were waiting for the lab test. And um, so we kind of didn't know like, what to believe. Um, so we kind of already knew I had Lyme before the DNA connections, but we weren't sure because we're like, uh, there's no like blood test or, you know, um, so everything was new to us. Sam, I just want to highlight the confusion around your diagnosis because you live in upstate New York, which is a very common Lyme and tick-borne disease illness area. And you see your general doctor who suspects Lyme, treats you with doxycycline, you get worse, go off after a week, and then the test comes back negative to Western blot. You do hear some things about the testing not being very accurate, but your health continues to decline. And it takes some time for you to see a kinesiologist who then says, well, we still think it can be Lyme disease. Is that accurate? Yes. Now, when you see the kinesiologist, you still just had the one negative blood test. And is the kinesiologist the one who ordered the DNA connection test for you? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember because it could have been one of the doctors we saw, like, cause I saw a handful of doctors. So it could have been like each doctor we saw that was like. <laughs> so, so really you were just getting sicker and sicker and seeing doctor after doctor and getting conflicting information from all these different doctors. It sounds like, and, and as right. you're getting worse, you're getting more overwhelmed with your health and your, your mysterious illness. Mm-hmm. 
So talk to us about your kinesiologist who clinically diagnosed you with Lyme before the DNA connections results came back. So what was it that made him believe you had Lyme disease? Um, just because, mm, <laughs> um, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> um, well, I guess I can re-ask that question though, Sam, because I'm curious, what was different about that appointment with the kinesiologist compared to your other doctors that you were seeing and getting nowhere? So what do you think it was about that visit? Is it something that you said? Do you think that he treated you differently, that he spoke with you more and got more information out of you? Why do you think, think that, that appointment was so different than your others? I think because she actually, actually like validated my symptoms and didn't make me feel like it was all in my head. And she, she has treated people with Lyme before. So she, she's like, yes, I've seen this. So it, she was actually the first person we ran into who, you know, has seen Lyme patients. But again, we were like, you know, like voodoo stuff, like, and we didn't know what to think of it. And totally understandable, Sam, because I was there at, that, at, at the beginning <laughs> as well, thinking this is like totally woo woo. I don't believe it. And then, you know, of course you <laughs> yeah. get the Lyme diagnosis. And then of course you start to go down those routes and have some success with those things. So it sounds like before your kinesiologist though, she really believed you. And prior to that, all these other doctors were implying it was psychological and in your head. And therefore you just shut down and didn't really even bother with them. Is that, is that kind of what you're telling us? Yes. Yep. So once you found a doctor in New York where Lyme is so prevalent, who actually believed you could have Lyme after exhibiting classic Lyme disease symptoms, the kinesiologist says, okay, you have Lyme. Did you wait to get the follow-up confirmation from, from DNA connections or did you treat with your kinesiologist? No, I actually went to her for a while, for a few months. And I went like, every Friday or something like that. Um, so I'd miss school and drive an hour and a half away. Um, and she would just have me hold like test tubes and I don't remember what she did. Like, I don't, I can't explain it. Sam, don't feel weird about this because this is something called muscle testing. And I have to admit yes. that yes. When we first heard this, Rich and I, I was like, no way, it's fake, it can't be real. And I have to tell you, I'm a believer now after you're our 201st podcast guest, I can't tell you how many people we've interviewed who have had great success with muscle testing and also using it as a means to, to treat as well. So walk us through a little bit what that was like for you because it's so non-traditional and you're sitting in this, this doctor's office and you're holding vials to basically treat your disease. Give us a little more detail about what that was like for you. So the first time I went, like, it's at her house, and she just has all these, like, um, vials, and it says, like, tick one, tick two, or, like, some of the um, co-infections, and I was like, Dad, I'm not going again, but I was actually going for free because he, because she knew my dad. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I guess we'll keep trying this. And so, you know, each week I, um, complete, I don't know what you call it, but, um, like, she'd be like, okay, this co-infection is gone. This co-infection is gone. But at the same time, I was still not feeling great. And I was like, are my parents really taking me to this? Like, I like, so, um, after a while, we're just like, you know, we're not seeing progress and it's not like you have like all those lab tests to see the progress. So we're like, you know, are we kind of wasting our time here or, and she also would give me all these supplements to take. And each time I went, like, I'd get a new supplement to take, and she never, like, took them away. So I was on, like, 60 a day. <laughs> I got really pill fatigued. <laughs> so, Sam, I'm curious. You said that after your first appointment, you said to your dad, I'm not going back. And is that because it was so non-traditional that you thought, like, there's no way this is going to help me? Yeah. Um, like, 
just holding vials and like getting my like oh laser treatment that's what that's what it was yeah and then I, it would completely wipe me out <laughs> um probably so, the laser treatment but but Sam was it doing something so it sounds like it was because you were responding to the treatment you were getting was, fatigued right so it was doing something to your body I was responding but I guess I just wanted things to happen faster and I never wanted to go on antibiotics because we're very cautious of that and all the side effects and everything. Um, so I just stayed on supplements for a long time. So looking back, do you think that now you're more open to non-traditional treatment protocols based on your experience with Lyme since you've been diagnosed? What is that again? Looking back, do you think that you're a little more accepting towards these non-traditional treatment modalities that aren't the norm because of your, what you've gone through basically since your diagnosis? Are you a little more accepting to that type of treatment protocol? Um, I don't know, because when I flew to California with my mom, um, he was also a kinesiologist and he tested me for like food sensitivities. And it was like, basically I was sensitive to like all the foods. <laughs> Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but it was like, I couldn't eat chicken. I couldn't eat like, I was like, what do I eat? <laughs> um, so I don't know. <laughs> so it sounds like in, in your experience, these doctors were a little off target with muscle testing and laser treatment and kinesiologists that their assessments maybe were not accurate in your specific case. Yeah. <laughs> So do you think that the supplements though, putting, putting aside all the other things that we discussed, do you think that the supplements were actually helping you in, in helping your body rebuild? And maybe you were experiencing a Herxheimer reaction from that during the time you were doing this treatment? Um, yeah, I, I was definitely Herxing a lot and that was painful. I also did sauna, um, to detox. And then I had, um, charcoal pills, those would help detox. And so I do feel like the supplements um, would help, but nothing that I could see, if that makes sense. It does. So it sounds like your experience with the kinesiologist wasn't all bad. It, the supplements did help you a little bit, but you realized it wasn't getting you where you needed to be. So you decided to then move on to look at some other options to, to heal. And, and at that point, where were you? Did you have your DNA connections results back? And now you knew definitively what, that you definitely had Lyme and possibly some co-infections before you moved on to your next doctor? Yeah, so we were pretty confident in the DNA connections and we still are. Um, so then my dad attended that Lyme seminar and he found the doctor in California. So we flew there and spent literally two days there and then flew back. So that was a lot traveling too. Um, traveling is always a lot on my body. And Sam, that was another kinesiologist, correct? Yeah, that was the food sensitivity one. And you, did, did you find that the food sensitivities that you were told you had were accurate, meaning were you reacting to those foods or are you eating those, some of those foods and not having any reactions at all? Um, I would like... I think I would like eat chicken, like to see if <laughs> it was true. And then like a while after, obviously after it was like digested and stuff, I'd be like, I'm not feeling right. So like we did, um, like I did follow his list, but that at the same time, I was like so restricted <laughs> to what I could eat. Um, but yeah, I think like, I mean, they obviously know what they're doing. It was just so new and different to me. And, and also probably too much, right? You're, you're allergic to everything. What could you possibly eat realistically on a regular yeah. basis for, to sustain you know, your, your, your health? So it, it sounds like it was valuable information, but just too much and too overwhelming for you to really avoid all those foods. So it wasn't really beneficial for you in the way you thought it would be because it was just too much. Right. So after this, this doctor in California... Obviously, the kinesiologist that you were seeing locally with the laser therapy wasn't really helping you in the way you wanted. 
you were doing some supplements and having some gains there and some hurts in there. What came next after the doctor in California? So after the doctor in California, my dad just kept doing research and read books every night. And he and my sister actually went to Philadelphia um, for a Lyme seminar. And that's where they met the doctor who is currently mine right now. So before we get there, Sam, do you know what co-infections came back on the DNA connections test? Or do you just know that it was positive for Lyme and not remember the co-infections? Um, co-infections, Babesia, Bartonella. Um, there was another one. I don't remember it. Um, but I also had Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So you were dealing with a whole wide variety of pathogens, which respond to different types of medications, not just an antibiotic, you know, one and one and done kill it type of, of approach. It sounds like based on your test results. Right. So once you knew what you had and your dad was just basically researching and researching and researching, he found this doctor at a, at a seminar, it sounds like. Who is this doctor? His name is Dr. Ross Margagiani, and he's at Turnpaw Health and Wellness. So give us an idea. It's, where, is, where are they located in comparison to where you were at the time? So I've actually never met him in person, and I really hope to. Um, someday because he has been my lifesaver. Um, he's in Pennsylvania and I would do conference calls with him and I still do. So walk us through what the conference call, was it virtual on Zoom like this where we had video yes. or is it a straight up phone call? It would be a video. And what was that like to get a, a diagnosis? Was he examining you? Did you have to show things like, was it a weird, awkward experience or do you think it actually worked out better than, than somebody would think? Um, it actually worked out great because he, he knew what he was dealing with and he had me just get all these tests done and like my vitamin D levels, which were dangerously low. And like, um, we actually found out I had like mold issues too. So we had a new roof put on the house. So talk to us about that. What was the first virtual appointment like with uh, Turnpaw Health and Dr. Dr. Ross? So was that something where in, initially right away he was saying, I'm going to treat you with all these things? Or was he digging deeper to see what else was there before he made any sort of treatment protocol for you? So it was a long time ago, but um, he, he did like ask me all my symptoms and how I've been feeling. Um, yeah, I, I can't really remember. Well, I guess as a follow-up to that though, Sam, how did you get to the mold component? Because mold susceptibility and people that are immunocompromised and suffering with various tick-borne illnesses like Lyme is really, is really prominent. And somebody healthy who, you know, like maybe your dad may not get sick from the mold exposure, but somebody like yourself who's now weakened and compromised from the Lyme disease is very susceptible to it. And, and it may actually, in fact, cause the treatment not to work if you're being exposed to mold all the time. So how did Dr. Ross come to that conclusion that you were suffering from mold exposure that could have held you back in your treatment journey? Okay, so now that I think back to it and the brain fog's kind of going away, the kinesiologist, the lady who I saw, she said I had a mold issue. So I forgot what we did, but like, we kind of just like, <laughs> this sounds really stupid, but we got like a cup full of air from each room and she tested them and said there was mold. So then my dad brought that up to Ross <laughs> that um, I had like a possible mold issue. So we did test for that. <laughs> so at that point, so it sounds like you had a lot more faith in Dr. Ross than you did the kinesiologist, although to her credit, she got you on some supplements and brought mold to, yeah. the, you know, to the forefront. And with Lyme, I think, you know, you do have to like go through different doctors and stuff, but it's also kind of like nice to have that team. I think that's a very 
accurate and important statement that you just made that it's, you need to build a team of doctors that have different specialties that can work together to help guide your healing journey. Cause collectively that's how you're going to get better. So when your dad brought up to Dr. Raw saying, Hey, we think we might have mold based on our kinesiologist. Then you did some follow-up testing on your home. It sounds like where you brought in a professional agency to run some tests, which then led to you guys replacing the roof in your home. Is that what happened? Yes. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's listening and they're interested in learning more about mold illness and how to test a home or how to test the body for, for mold, uh, Michelle McKeon, who runs Lyme and Cancer Services, we call her now the, the mold queen. She's a great resource and we'll tag her in the show notes as well if people want to learn more about that because it is an important factor that many people tell us they get treatment and if they didn't address the mold first, then they still stay sick. So it's, I'm sorry, they still stay sick. So thankfully, in your case, you addressed the mold before you started your pretty aggressive treatment protocol, which I think was very powerful for you and your experience, because it may not have gone as well as it did if it weren't for you addressing the mold first. So Sam, talk to us a little bit more now. Once you did that and you did this whole battery of tests, what did Dr. Ross finally decide to treat you with for your wide variety of, of tick-borne illnesses? So he was the one who we, you know, we told him, I, I think I was on supplements for a while with him. And then we're like, okay, we want to, we want to maybe try the antibiotics. So we did that. And while we, while I was on antibiotics, it was during the summer when we were getting the new roof put on. So I couldn't be in the house. So I lived with my grandma for a while. Um, but I, you know, I felt great on the antibiotics, but, um, well, no, not necessarily at the beginning, it was really hard. And I would wear the motion, the motion sickness bracelets because those would help with nauseousness. And I, for a while I was like only eating like white rice so it would like absorb everything. Um, but after like a week or two when I finally got used to the antibiotics, like I started to feel pretty good and could move around. And I, like, I almost felt normal. Um, and then I wasn't taking them because I think I only took them for like a month or two and it was oral. We were going to do the IV, but it's, um, it would be too close to my heart. And we were worried about that. Sam, it sounds like, again, you were doing everything right. You were, between your research and your parents' research and your doctor's guidance, you've decided to have a very rice-based diet, which sounds weird. But Dr. Rolls has a very thorough diet plan for people that take his, his protocol. And he recommends having a diet in the beginning, a very, very basic diet with foods that won't irritate your body and make your symptoms worse. And white rice is a very common ingredient in, in his you know, early stages diet. So do you <laughs> feel that that was actually effective for you and, and, and you eating a lot of rice and kind of me having a very bland, mild diet at first to help your body respond as, as good as possible to the antibiotics? Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure less nauseousness. So you mentioned that you went on these antibiotics, but I think it was more of a combination of drugs and antibiotics that you were on orally from Dr. Ross. Is that correct? Yes. Do you recall, Sam, the types of antibiotics that you were on? So I was on, uh, I don't remember. I actually have your, your questionnaire in front of me. If you'd like me to read them all for you. Yes, that'd be so, great. <laughs> so it looks like you took Dapsone, which is a very, very effective drug that many people like Jenny Pataki have taken with great success and uh, Rifampin as well, minocycline, uh, which I can never pronounce correctly, and Plaquenil. So it sounds like you did a combination of, of three antibiotics along with Plaquenil, which is the anti-malaria drug for, for the Babesia. So you hit it pretty aggressively from an antibiotic standpoint, and then you also hit it from a Babesia standpoint to hit it all at the same time. Yeah. So what sounds really promising and hopeful is that in the beginning, you weren't responding too well, probably because you were herxing from the combination of all these drugs. But then within a few weeks, you had a really like, oh, my goodness, my life is coming back moment. Right. Yeah. And when you pulled off the antibiotics after about a month, it sounds like your health started to kind of backslide again. Is that what happened? Right. So then um, 
He told us about hyperbaric oxygen chambers and the Myers cocktail. So I did that in Rochester um, twice a week. And Sam, did you ever go back on any oral antibiotics after that or after the months that was it and you pivoted over to other modalities like, like the hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Uh, no, I have not been on antibiotics since um, because I think we, so we got me off the Plaquenol. I think it was the Plaquenol right away because I noticed my vision um, was changing. So it was like one day, it was like almost as if like I got water in my eye and there was like a spot that was just blurry. And then it was my other eye too. And like my vision would just like blur in and out all the time. So do you think that the combination of the Dapsone, Rifampin, the Minocycline and the Plaquenil, do you think that was a really integral part in your healing journey, if not the most important part? that really did the most aggressive purging of all the various pathogens you had from your tick bite or tick bites? Um, yeah. What do you, what would you rank as number two if there were a number two, or was it just a combination of those drugs that you feel were the most important things you did in your healing journey? Um, I don't know because actually there was this one time when I did the hyperbaric um, chamber and the IV therapy. Um, and I felt great for like a weekend. And that was like huge to me because I finally felt normal again. Like there was no pain at all. And then after, um, treatment after that, I didn't end up feeling that way again. So I just kind of lost hope again. And, we stopped that because it got expensive. Um, and, you know, I think I was noticing some changes, but at the same time, everything's just so slow with Lyme and you just want it to be faster and, and insurance doesn't cover anything. I think those are two really important parts, right? Number, number one is insurance doesn't cover anything and it's crazy expensive to treat, especially using hyperbaric oxygen therapy and these IVs. And the second piece is it's not going to be a quick fix when you're suffering from chronic Lyme. It's a slow and steady race and it's an up and down, meaning, you know, the, the saying healing is not linear. So it sounds like you were having possibly some Herxheimer reactions when you had your down moments, but then when you weren't Herxheimer, you were having some pretty really good moments, almost like you were symptom free and you were yeah. on that roller coaster while you were treating with the, with the oral antibiotics and also with the, the IVs and the, the HBOT or the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So uh, with, with the IVs, it was IV Myers cocktail, which is just like a, a combination of a lot of vitamins, right? And you also right. have, I think, IV glutathione as well to help with, with your detoxification and your inflammation. It yeah, that's like. what I would do at the end. Yep. So just give us an assessment. So when you, when you went off the antibiotics, you said you were almost normal and then you backslid how far did you backslide meaning how sick did you get again after the antibiotics before you started up the ivs and the hblt um i wouldn't say i was like really sick again i think it was just like the side effects like the vision um you know not having as much of an appetite um and i think i was dealing with and still am dealing with the repercussions of antibiotics because, you know, it does a lot to your immune system. So let's talk a little bit more, a little bit more about that though, Sam. So there are repercussions to taking antibiotics. However, in many cases, they're a great tool and they're a worthwhile tool, despite some of the effects that they have that could be countered, you know, in some, in some, in some cases, what were the side effects that you experienced from the antibiotics that you were exhibiting after going off the treatment? Um, so my eyes and then like they were just really sensitive and the blurriness. Um, I'm trying to remember because <laughs> I don't want to mix like Lyme symptoms with. With the side effects, right? Yeah, yeah. Were you so, still fatigued or was, or was the fatigue better after the treatment, the, the oral antibiotic treatment? 
I was still fatigued. Still fatigued. Yeah. So I do want to follow up with the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So was that, is that where they put you into like the chamber and they depressurize it? Is that, is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, it was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was actually really nice. I would take the best naps in there. (laughs) It's so funny you say that because some people say it was anxiety inducing and they never would do it again. Other people like you, Sam, are like, it was amazing. I had the best sleep ever. And I was healing. So it's just interesting to hear so many different perspectives from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But did you suffer from anxiety prior to this? Is, is that something that you ever dealt with in your life prior to getting sick or even while you were sick? You know, before I um, got sick, I would experience like anxiety attacks. And like um, my parents kind of thought like I was just like just being dramatic again. Um, but like, I, I literally like felt like I was gonna like die. Like I'd have these panic attacks and I just, I don't know. It just got really dark and I, I just felt like I was going to die. But see, I think that's another thing where your, your parents thought you were being dramatic. A lot of healthcare professionals probably thought it could have been psychological and not Lyme because of your anxiety. However, Lyme itself actually causes anxiety as a symptom. Plus being so sick, you can't help but getting anxious when you're experiencing all these wild symptoms all over the place, right? So do you yeah. think that that played a role too in your, in your delayed diagnostic journey? Um, yeah. So let's talk about the, the cost perspective because obviously the IVs and the HBLT were not covered by insurance. If you, if you know and you're willing to share about how much did you had to spend out of pocket you and your family to treat your Lyme disease? Oh boy. Um, well, the hyperbaric for just one month was two grand. Um, and I'd say about like, I don't know. It's a hard question. So I, it, yeah. I think you could just basically say expensive overall expensive. between, between HBOT, the IVs. And we've heard people tell us that one IV infusion can cost a couple thousand dollars depending on what they're getting. So it's, it's something I yeah. think that's important to note. I don't want to say something too low or too. Yes. And I <laughs> understand. And, and the, the point of the question is we need to do better as a, as a society and, and really in general to be able to get adequate treatment for people in the Lyme community and have it covered by insurance. So we're not putting ourselves in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt just to feel better from an illness that is known where these things can actually help them and treat them. So that, that was my objective of that question. Mm-hmm. So, so I just, so now that you're doing all these things, you're, you're still in a good spot, but you're just dealing with the after effects. When you stopped, it was, you said it was pr- partly because of financial constraints and partly because you were feeling a little bit better when you stopped doing the HBOT and the IV infusions, did your health just continue to improve, you know, from then? And how long ago was that from the present meaning when you stopped all the treatments up until the present date? Um, so when I did the IV and oxygen chambers, sometimes I would feel great. And then other times it would just completely wipe me out. Um, but I did feel like sometimes I had more energy And that was huge because I was very fatigued and, you know, I I didn't have a lot of energy. So that was huge. So we were noticing like um, changes, but in, and especially like, I remember one time just having my IV treatment done and she put the glutathione in and I'm like, oh my gosh, my brain feels so clear. Like there was no brain fog. It was insane. Um, but it just, it just got expensive. I would have liked to keep doing it. And I actually wanted like an oxygen chamber at our house and we were looking into that, but yeah. Sim, I think another great tip you just provided was the glutathione impact on brain fog and also inflammation in general and, and detoxification. So Rich and I recently both have, we, we both take the Restore Kit, which is by Dr. Rawls and Vital Plan, which has glutathione in it. But we, we're now supplementing beyond that because it's shown to help take certain measures in, in dealing with COVID uh, and, and pre- from a preventative standpoint. And also if you get sick to help you not get as sick. 
So we're supplementing with, with glutathione and myself as a chronic Lyme patient, I've noticed an improvement in my cognitive abilities by taking additional glutathione and just a, a better improvement overall of my health from a standpoint of inflammation as well. So are you taking oral glutathione as well now that you're home to help you, you know, in a way that maybe, maybe not as strong as the IV, but also a way to get you some help as you need it throughout the, throughout the day and throughout, you know, the, the weeks and the months that, that you're um, struggling with brain fog and things like that. Yeah, I have a tube of it. It, it doesn't taste that great, but I'll, I'll use it if I need it. Let's talk about that because I, I actually take, and we're still you know exploring the different mediums to, to take it, but we take oral as a capsule glutathione. Oh. That's, and I know they make the gel type as well. I think that goes under your tongue. Is that what you take? Yeah, I it's, it's orange flavor and it's like good, but um, the aftertaste is weird. <laughs> So is it still helpful for you that when you take the glutathione that you're seeing some relief with your brain fog and, and your symptoms? Yes. And um, actually, since we're talking about glutathione, I used to have hypoglycemic seizures. So like if I didn't eat enough, um, I would just have seizures. So my dad would like drop that on my tongue and give me some water and like a banana and I'd be good. Wow. So it's a really powerful multi-purpose tool, glutathione yeah. for sure. So Sam, talk to us about, I mean, you're here today. We've been talking now for, oh my goodness, it's going on almost two full hours, including our, <laughs> our offline chat. And you're still really, you're still really, you're, you're doing great with telling us your story. You've given us a ton of great information and clearly you've made a lot of progress from a, a brain fog standpoint and also just a general health standpoint by seeing you interact here on, on this video that I know our, our listeners can't see. But tell us, how are you feeling today? And give us some hope, give us some inspiration about the progress you've made and also where you see yourself going in the coming months and years to continue on with your healing journey. Yeah, so it definitely helps being here in this warm weather because um, the cold still really does affect me. Um, but, you know, it helps being here and I still do have my struggles and days with pain like Honestly, I haven't, I don't remember what life is like without pain, but at the same time, I think back to the time when I first got sick and could hardly move. Um, so I, I really try not to complain about it um, because, you know, it's the new normal for me and that's okay because I've learned so much about my body and you know, when it needs to rest, like if your body is telling you to rest, then you need to do that. And with finding out I had Lyme, I also found out I had mold issues and that could have caused issues later on in life with pregnancy and um, just a lot of other health issues. Um, and I'm really grateful for where I'm at now. And with my vision, I went to eye therapy for half a year and the doctor said it's 80% better. So that's amazing because that was huge for me. And I wasn't able to get my license, but I now have it. So Lyme is a roller coaster, but you know, there's also lots of highs. Sam, talk to us about the other elements of beauty on your journey, not just your recovery, which has just been a beautiful description of what your recovery has been like, but talk to us about what else you've learned about yourself and what, you're, what you've learned about um, what you'd like to do in the future based on having gone through this Lyme disease journey. Yeah, um, I've learned that like we're all on different journeys and, you know, Sometimes I'll go to the gym and I'll compare myself. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm so scrawny compared to everyone. But, you know, everyone goes through something at some point in life. And, you know, we don't know what it is. But I'm just hoping with this podcast that people know more about Lyme. And um, I still, you know, I love little kids and I don't get tired of them and stuff. Um, 
that's something that doesn't tire me out. I could just play with my cousins for hours and, um, and I still want to become a teacher. And with school, sometimes it can be tough um, because just either the brain fog or for some reason, like full moons affect me. Um, and I've heard other people say that too. So I know I'm not alone on that or crazy. You are certainly not alone in that, Sam. <laughs> so, and just like traveling and stuff, like that'll get me set back. But, you know, we have our setbacks and, but also with me finding out I had Lyme, my, my sister who attended that seminar, um, she got more interested in it and she is actually um, doing like going to school for like research um, because she wanted to be a dentist first. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool. So now you've inspired your, your, your parents, you've inspired your sister, and now you, you're on your path. Talk to us about how you're now using social media as a vehicle to reach out to other people to make them uh, first feel validated um, with their Lyme experience, but we, even more importantly, uh, making more people aware of Lyme and Lyme disease. Yeah, so first I was like nervous to post about Lyme and I didn't want to hear people be like, oh, she's posting about this, like it's not even real or stuff like that. Um, but I was like, no, I'm going to post it because I don't want people to go through like the hell I've gone through. And, you know, I'm going to keep posting it and show that there can be progress made. And just finding all the different connections with people, it's cool because not many people know about Lyme or some don't even really care enough to find out more about it. So like just connecting, cause I've connected with so many people like on Instagram and stuff. And I actually connected with this girl on Instagram and we text each other every day. And it's just awesome to know you're not alone. And there's this amazing community out there. All right, Samson, now talk to us about what you would do if, God forbid, um, your uncle who you're living with came walking into your room after this podcast and had a tick biting him on his leg. What would you recommend that he do so that he would not have to go through a horrific Lyme disease journey? Um, so if he had a tick on him, first, I'd probably freak out a little bit, <laughs> um, but we'd get like a tick remover and just make sure he doesn't like break it because if you break it, then you can't get it tested. So um, put it in like um, a Ziploc baggie or container and freeze it and then bring it to the doctor. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Sam Lesh. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sam Lesh, please visit our Instagram page at Sammy, S-A-M-M-Y-Y-L-E-S-C-H. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that's provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your past comments on our podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.